0: Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's also a 2014 National Poetry Slam champion and the author of the poetry collection Counting Descent, which won the 2017 Literary Award for Best Poetry Book from the Black Caucus, the American Library Association, and was a finalist for an NAACP Image Award. His narrative nonfiction book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, was a number one New York Times bestseller and was long listed for the National Book Award. He will be reading an excerpt from How the Word is Passed with an original score created by Tabor Arias. Hi,
1: this is Clint Smith, and you're listening to Storybound.
0: Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Pod Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a moment, Clint Smith is going to take you to Angola, a former plantation turned maximum security prison in Louisiana, where he examines the implications of its history.
1: Hey there, I'm Clint Smith. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America which is a book that explores how different historical sites across the country reckon with, or fail to reckon with, their relationship to the history of slavery. One of the places that I went was Angola Prison, which is the largest maximum security prison in the country, located in Louisiana. It is bigger than the island of Manhattan. It is a place where 75% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences, and it is built on top of a former plantation. So this is a chapter that I wrote about my journey to Angola alongside a man named Norris Henderson who served almost 30 years at Angola. And this chapter that I'm going to read from is about Angola. Approaching the building where executions took place, I felt my chest tighten and my mouth turn sour. Inside, the room adjacent to the execution chamber was unremarkable. At its center, were two wooden tables brought together, their clean, polished surfaces reflecting the flickering fluorescent lights. The tables were surrounded by ten armless black rolling office chairs set to different heights, some slightly reclined, as if someone were sitting inside of them. Next to the back wall were two tall plants, their leaves bursting a full and healthy green. The walls were beige with white trim and the floor was a neat aggregation of square linoleum tiles. The soft hum of the air conditioning vibrated throughout the room. With the exception of the large circular seal of the Louisiana Department of Corrections at the center of each table, it would have been easy to mistake this for any other conference room in any other office building. This was not any other conference room. This was the room where the people sentenced to be killed by the state of Louisiana had their final meals. They ate these meals, perhaps a hamburger and french fries, perhaps a steak and mashed potatoes, maybe a biscuit, maybe a basket of boiled crawfish and a bowl of gumbo before being injected with a cocktail that rendered them unconscious, paralyzed their muscles, discontinued their breathing and stopped their hearts. In the vestibule, between the conference room and the execution chamber, eight mahogany leather chairs were packed tightly together in two rows, the second row elevated slightly behind the first. On the far wall, there was a sliding wooden door, and on the other side of that sliding door were four more chairs, two in front and two behind, seated next to the window. The victim's family, if they so choose, sit on one side of the sliding door, while witnesses, often the media, sit on the other side. The family of the person being executed cannot be in the viewing chamber for the execution. In the front of these chairs, on both sides, was a large glass panel that looked directly into the execution chamber, and directly at the table upon which the person would be killed. As we walked into the room, and slowly encircled the table at the center, the group fell silent. Many were unable to stare at it directly. Silent, but for the soft symphony of breaths, we were a congregation of lowered heads and sunken shoulders. The table was long and blue-black, its upholstery covering a thin layer of foam padding. Seven discolored brown and black straps, haunting in their stillness, stretched across the width of the bed, each locked and pulled tight. A small pillow rested on the head of the table where the person is meant to lie, and another set of straps would come down over their shoulder. About a foot below the pillow, on either side of the bed, were places where the soon-to-be-executed would lay their arms. On each of these arm-length extensions was a leather strap meant to be tightened near the person's elbow. They were noticeably different from the other straps, a faded blend of gray and brown, taut leather that had cracked with age. The straps, with their procession of small notches, dangled below the table. At the foot of the table were two shackles, their silver metal glimmering under the lights. The hot rush of blood pulsed behind my ears as I felt the shame of being alive in a room built to kill.
0: The music you're hearing in this episode is an original composition created by Tabor Arias. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Clint Smith and Tabor Arias. And now we return from our commercial break.
1: bus ride to Angola, Norris Henderson had told me a story about how this bed, or the one that came before it, had been made. He said that when the state of Louisiana transitioned from the electric chair to lethal injection in 1991, the prison needed a bed upon which to lay the condemned. Meanwhile, in the welding shop of the prison, some of the men were handed a new assignment, though they did not know what for.
2: One of the clerks, happened to see the whole blueprint laying on the drafting table. He went back into the shop and said, Bruh, y'all know what you're building?
0: They're like, What? You're building the damn deathbed.
1: Instead of purchasing a bed, Norris said, the Department of Corrections found it cheaper to direct the prisoners in the machine and welding shops to build it, with each part of the bed assembled separately. Norris paused, shaking his head at the memory.
2: One of the guys on the welding crew, his brother was on death row.
1: Upon realizing what they were building, Norris said, the men refused to continue. And as a result, they were locked inside their
0: cells. The word spread like wildfire because it was lunchtime when they was getting locked up. And so when it came time for everybody to go back to work after lunch, everybody was like, we're not going back to work.
1: The prison, Norris said, was essentially at a standstill for three days. My mind jolted back to the room where I stood, between the table and the glass panel, looking at the table and then turning my head to look at the chairs on the other side of the glass. The chairs and glass turned this room into a spectacle of state-sanctioned and taxpayer-funded death. The table was a reminder of how fragile our bodies are, how little is needed to extinguish a life. Robert Sawyer was the first person to be put to death by lethal injection in Louisiana in 1993. Childhood abuse left him brain damaged with severe mental impediments. He was executed despite having an IQ of only 68, below the threshold of what is considered intellectually disabled. Dobby Gillis Williams, another man who suffered from intellectual disability was killed on January 8, 1999. For his final meal, he ate 12 candy bars and a bowl of ice cream. Gerald Bordelon, who, during his execution, wore a gold cross that his daughter had given him just hours before, turned to the family of his victim in the moments before he was killed, looking at them through the glass, and said, I'm sorry, I don't know if that brings any closure or peace It should have never happened, but it did, and I'm sorry. Each of these men was found guilty of taking someone's life, but standing in that room, I couldn't understand how taking their lives in return made anything better. filed back onto the bus without saying much of anything. The engine started and the bus's rubber tires spit out clouds of dust behind them. Earlier, we had visited the law library and automotive tech shop where we met John, a 53-year-old who was in charge of the vocational training program. More than 30 years into a life sentence, he spoke thoughtfully of how Though it seemed unlikely that he would ever be released, his work made it possible to provide mentorship and life skills to men who would be going back into society. It helped give his life a sense of purpose. The law library was filled with dozens of bookshelves containing old legal texts and small carols tucked away between them where books and casework could be stored. Here, we listened to three men describe their experiences working in the library. I was not allowed to bring any recording device inside the building itself, but I remember how they spoke of the way the law library helped them reclaim a sense of agency, how learning the law made them feel as if they still had control over something in their lives. I have spent the past several years teaching in prisons and jails, and the tables spread out across the law library reminded me of so many of the classrooms where I had worked with incarcerated writers. As I listened to the men speak about their experiences, It was impossible not to think of all the stories my own students had shared with me about living inside of a cage. It felt incredibly important to hear directly from the incarcerated in Angola, but having an official employed by the prison present us with seemingly pre-selected speakers lent the impression that the men were giving us presentations that they had given on many other occasions to many other visitors. I imagine that there was little chance that these men would say anything unfavorable about the prison in front of a prison representative. Such dissent could lead to retribution. There is a long precedent for that. As such, there will always be a limit to the amount of candor an incarcerated person can provide in such a space. After listening to these men, we returned to the bus. I sat in the fourth row of seats as the shuttle rattled along the narrow dirt road, gravel cackling underneath us. As the bus rolled on, I thought of how slavery a history with which Angola is inextricably linked, was only being alluded to in a sort of off-handed way. Roger stood at the front with a microphone in his hand, glancing around to see if anyone had a question as we traveled to our next destination. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the prison's relationship to slavery, I said. I was nervous to ask the question, and I was ashamed of myself for feeling nervous. Roger paused, then nodded.
2: He's asked me to talk a little bit about the prison's relationship to slavery.
1: Repeating my question, perhaps to buy time, or so people in the back of the bus could hear.
2: I'll tell you this, and I told you this when we came in. This was one of the bloodiest prisons in America. It was a horrible prison.
1: His voice was sincere and steady.
2: On the way out, I'm going to show you the red hat cell block.
1: Speaking of the prison's infamous Maximum Security Housing Unit, that closed in 1972. And we don't make any bones about it. I can't change what happened here when Samuel James took this prison over. This was, uh, this. He stumbled over his words as he attempted to finish his thought.
2: They housed slaves on this land, and I can't change that. I think it's an interesting situation we're in. When you go from that, when you're at a level with some of the worst stuff that has ever happened on a piece of land in America this 18,000 acres has seen more suffering than any 18,000 acre piece of property in the world probably. When you look at it, it's horrible. But when you go from that, when you go years and years and years, and you get to where we are today, with the redemption and the change, then that's what I like to talk about. Our history is our history, and I can't change that.
1: Roger went on to share how the prison had sent one of its observation towers to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. The Red Hat cell block was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. More evidence, according to Roger, that the penitentiary was acknowledging its history. He paused, looked around the bus, and smiled. I'll get off my soapbox. Before moving on to talk about the prison's hospice, which we passed on our left. A wave of whispers made their way around the small bus. Rogers, I can't change that, seemed to provide the pretense of acknowledgement while creating distance from personal culpability. It was reminiscent of a refrain laced throughout our country's conversations about the history of racism. I thought about all the times growing up when I had sat in class and heard a white classmate say, well, my ancestors didn't own slaves. Didn't own slaves. Didn't own slaves. Or heard a political commentator on television say, Why are we still talking about slavery? People need to get over it. Get over it. Get over or politicians say, We can't wallow in the past. It's time to focus on the future. On the future. When I hear these deflections, I think of all the ways this country attempts to smother conversations about how its past has shaped its present, how slavery is made to sound as if it happened in a prehistoric age instead of only a few generations ago. In his 1935 book, Black Reconstruction in America, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote that the story the country tells about its relationship to chattel slavery is willfully distorted. Quote, Our histories tend to discuss American slavery so impartially that in the end, nobody seems to have done wrong and everybody was right. Slavery appears to have been thrust upon an unwilling, helpless America, while the South was blameless in becoming its center. One is astonished in the study of history at the recurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, distorted, skimmed over. If in Germany today, there was a prison built on top of a former concentration camp and that prison disproportionately incarcerated Jewish people, it would rightly provoke outrage throughout the world. I imagine there would be international summits on closing such an egregious institution. And yet... In the United States, such collective outrage at this plantation-turned-prison is relatively muted. It's not that people don't know. Angola prison has been regularly and casually referred to as a plantation by state authorities and media for over a century. When many people say, Angola is a prison built on a former plantation, it is often made as an unsettling observation, but not a moral indictment. Is it because our collective understanding of slavery and its inherent violence is so limited? Or is it that the violence experienced by black people is thought less worthy of mourning? White supremacy enacts violence against black people, but it also numbs a whole country: black and white, black and white, black and, white. Black and white. to what in any other context, would provoke our moral indignation.
0: The music you're hearing in this episode is an original composition created by Tabor Arias. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Clint Smith and Tabor Arias. And now for our final chapter.
1: Still wasn't satisfied with the answer Roger had provided, so after he responded to a question from someone else in the group by discussing the positive programming the prison was doing, I raised my hand again. On that note, you're showing us lots of and talking a lot about some of the stuff that you all do really well, which is wonderful to see. I'm curious what things you think you all could be doing better. In hindsight, I should have asked my follow-up question more directly, but in that moment, I was concerned with sounding condescending or disrespectful. I was occupying two identities. As a black man who grew up in Louisiana, I felt a responsibility to demand more from a place that had enacted so much violence against my community. As a PhD student at an Ivy League university, I did not want to come across as someone who had dropped in to critique a place that I had no personal ties to. I didn't want to dismiss the reforms. It's important that prisons are not dangerous for people kept in them. It's important that people are prepared for life if they leave and allowed the opportunity to live a meaningful life for however long they are in prison. But simply because something has been reformed does not mean it is now acceptable. And even if something is now better, that does not undo its past, nor does it eliminate the necessity of speaking out about how the past may have shaped the present. Roger talked about how the prison had no control over what happened in the state legislature and that it needed that body to pass certain laws in order for them to help prisoners more effectively. He talked about the extremely low recidivism rate for people convicted of murder, but reminded us that without a change in sentencing laws, Angola could not simply release its prisoners. I was astonished by the lack of institutional contrition, the refusal to admit what was right in front of us. I have no way of knowing Roger's intentions, but it was evident that he had little interest in talking about the role slavery had played in shaping Angola, which in its earliest days had a quote, big house, and was of the old southern plantation style on the grounds, in which the person responsible for all the people held there, the warden, lived with his family. Some prison employees and their families are also given free housing on the grounds. And well into the 20th century, guards and other prison employees used the labor of those incarcerated for their own personal use. In a book about Angola, published in 1990, Patty Draheer, whose father was a guard captain at Angola, is quoted looking back nostalgically on her time living on the grounds. Angola was a pleasant place to live back then. A vegetable cart came by every morning. What you didn't get in pay, you got in benefits. You could get inmates as cooks, yard boys, house boys. You could have two or three of them if you wanted. We had an old cook named Leon who cried like a baby when he got parole. He said ours was the only home he had known in a long time. I brought up my concerns with Norris and he looked at me and said, sometimes people want to let dead dogs, lie. dead dogs lie, but I didn't want that. I wanted the prison to create a sign at the entrance naming that it had been a plantation. I wanted markers erected in the places where incarcerated people had died. And for the first and last sentence of every tour, to begin with the word slavery. 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 I wanted Angola, where 71% of people are serving life sentences and three quarters of the population is black, to not pretend as if that was a coincidence. What I wanted more than anything was for this prison not to be here, holding these people on this land with this history. It all felt so profoundly irredeemable. Irredeemable. While Roger may have been unwilling to provide more than a perfunctory acknowledgement of the prison's relationship to slavery, The relationship is clear to those who have experienced incarceration themselves. Generations of men who have been incarcerated at Angola or elsewhere have been more than willing to name that connection. Monroe Green, who arrived at Angola in 1957, was explicit. Quote, I saw a big farm, there were a lot of men in the fields, the living conditions We're like on those slave ships coming over here, with the quarters filled with slaves. A poem poem from Mark King in a 1992 issue of Angola's award-winning prison magazine, The Angolite, draws direct comparisons between the brutality of slavery and the conditions and treatment of the people in Angola. A century of forced labor, Blood and pain. Blood and pain. Lives wasted. Lives wasted. Buried in the shame. Slave masters, Slave masters oversee master. their daily task. Hidden behind century-old sadistic masks. Sadistic, matter. sadistic matter. The world has passed this deathly land by, deathly land by. the inhabitants still by. ask why. Ask why. Ask why. A poem. A poem from Mark King. <gasps> In 1998, Chuck Unger said the people held in Angola have, quote, become modern-day slaves for the state. We work at hard labor for practically nothing, and we make people rich. rich. Incarcerated activist and writer Mumila Abu-Jamal has noted, if there is ever a question of the slave parentage of the American prison system, one glance at the massive penitentiary known as Angola removes all doubt. In 2000, Lane Nelson, who wrote in The Angolite, observed that, quote, Angola's turbulent history is stitched to the present by threads of oppression, oppression. where people have been held in bondage on this land for more than 200 years. Uninterested in obscuring the past and its relationship to the present, Nelson stated unequivocally that Angola, quote, still conjures historical images of Southern slavery. slavery. (laughs) And in 2018, prisoners refused to work after a confrontation between workers and guards. The organization Decarcerate Louisiana released a set of demands on behalf of striking workers, including a call for a national conversation on how state prison farms had come to hold so many people of African descent against their will. We are urging that local, state, and federal governments who currently hold hundreds of thousands of African-Americans in prison farms across the country be investigated for antebellum criminality, criminality involuntary, involuntary servitude, and slavery. slavery. It's 10 o'clock, good evening. This is The World Tonight with...
0: This was an excerpt from the book, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. You can buy yourself a copy right now at your local bookseller. Thank you to Clint Smith for reading and thank you to Tabor Arias for providing this original composition. You should follow Tabor Arias on Spotify. That's T-A-B-E-R-A-R-I-A-S, Tabor Arias. Thank you to Michael Takins and Katie LaSalle at Broadside PR. And thank you to Epidemic Sound. Production assistance is by Matt Keeley and Jesse Adler from the Pogglomerate. Social media help is from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Pogglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can find us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also find me directly on Twitter at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. We'll see you then.